Now entering Nerdist.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Leonard Malton, and this is Malton on Movies. I'm the only Malton here today. Jesse is indisposed. You'll have to just make do with me, and you'll have to make do with our guest today, who has so many credentials, has such a lengthy resume. I don't know where to begin. Michael Feinstein is perhaps the hardest working man in show business since James Brown. (laughs) I mean that sincerely. You are uh, a performer, obviously, a singer, a pianist, a conductor, an impresario, an entrepreneur, a producer, a a radio host, uh, and a nurturer of talent, and the founder of 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 a foundation. You have a foundation that's not just something with your name on it that people donate to. Tell us about that. Let's start with that. How did that all begin in Indiana? Oh, thanks, Leonard. Thank you for having me and for bringing that up. A number of years ago, I started looking at my collection of stuff, to which I know you can relate, Mm -hmm. thinking, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Because I've collected all sorts of artifacts, ephemera, musical memorabilia, studio playback discs, and orchestrations. And orchestrations take up a lot of room Mm -hmm. because an orchestration is parts for all the players in an orchestra. And I have thousands of orchestrations. And I thought... I've, I've As got who doesn't? <laughs> who of us doesn't face this problem? Oh, in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and instead of admitting that I should be on an episode of Hoarders, <laughs> I decided to start uh, a foundation to preserve all of this musical material. And it's headquartered in Indiana because the mayor of Carmel, Indiana, which was named the, no- the most livable city in Money Magazine in 2012. Oh, my asked me to come there because they've just built a $180 million performing arts center and wanted to bring the Great American Songbook to this location to give them an identity. And in return, they offered office staff, uh, physical space, storage space, and the support, the financial support of the, the city, and also the commitment to build a museum which means that there will be, for the first time, an American popular song museum, which should exist alongside the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll sure. Hall of Fame. And so uh, that's why I went there. But I think one of the most important things we do is the um, the annual Songbook Academy, where we have uh, high school kids who come and perform American songbook material and um, compete to become the songbook ambassador and... Uh, our ambassador of last year, Matty Balio, just starred as Tracy Turnblad in the live broadcast of Hairspray. And uh, she's just turned 20 when I knew her. She was uh, 18. And, and you've had a, a distinguished roster of uh, people yes. come through there so far, and they've all done well. Yes, they've sung at Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center and been on America's Got Talent. And and uh, it's like planting little seeds to keep this classic stuff alive. Planting important seeds. Yes. This is great. It's a big become the next Michael Feinstein. <laughs> God help them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they can become hoarders too. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, wait, you have to tell a story. You, you once told me a story that was at the same time, and you knew this as you told it to me, flattering to me and horrifying. Oh, I know what story you're going to talk about, <laughs> about, about your movie guy. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, 
Well, many years ago, I was searching for some orchestrations that were part of the Columbia Pictures Library. At that time, they were still located in the Burbank Studios. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I talked my way into the music library, which was headed by a lovely woman named Harriet Crawford, who had been with Columbia Pictures for many, many years. And at the moment that I arrived, she was throwing away mountains of music, piles of orchestrations, putting them in a dumpster. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I've been given an ultimatum. Ultimatum, we need space. And, and she said, so I'm throwing these away. I said, well, what are you throwing away? She said, I'm throwing away uh, scores. They're not, they're not any good. I said, well, how do you know that they're not any good? She said, well, I look up Leonard Maltin's guide movies on TV, and if it has two stars or less, I throw the score away. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of a more... Horrifying use of my book ever. <laughs> but I, she let me take certain things out of the dumpster. I wasn't able to get a lot of it, but I got a number of s- scores that Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn wrote, and mm-hmm. I later gave those to Julie Stein, and I rescued what I could. Uh, but sorry, Leonard, uh, if yeah. you had given them higher ratings, they still exist today. <laughs> if only, if only. And I think one of them was like, You Were Never Lovelier, mm-hmm. which. Uh, of course, there's a score by Jerome Kern. Yeah, which I give Mercy. a darn good review to for crying out loud. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. Well, Michael, you're doing, you're doing the Lord's work here. You're doing, you're doing very important work, not just because of what you do archivally, but even in your performances, you, you have introduced a generation or more uh, of listeners and, and viewers to great songs and to... Uh, little-known songs that ought to be better known, and you you sort of spread the gospel of American popular song, and uh, and you do it because you're such a wonderful entertainer. Oh well, thank you. I started doing it because I because I, I love the songs, and I just wanted people to hear the songs. I mean, I I didn't do it to be an entertainer, mm-hmm. but I had such enthusiasm for the music, mm-hmm. and it it just grew from there, uh, and and I still feel a sense of urgency because there are so many thousands and thousands of great songs that people don't know and have never heard. I think the first album of yours that I bought, and I say album because it was on vinyl. Oh, yes. Which to remind some some they're, they're, they're black, they're round, a little shiny, with a little hole in the middle. Album. Uh, I bought an album of yours. I think it was a live performance album. Oh, Live at the Algonquin. And, and it contained a song that I've always loved, and that has an interesting background, and that Johnny Mathis just performed on your radio show, Song Travels, yes. on such a night as this. Yes. It's such a lovely song, but it's a wonderful sort of twist to how it came about. Yes, it's a song that was written by Hugh Martin and Marshall Bearer for an unproduced musical called A Little Night Music. On such a night as this did young Lorenzo swear He'd gladly swim a thousand seas to please his lady fair on such a night did Gershwin write his rhapsody. On such a set did young Jeanette sing, Lover, Come Back to Me. It's a musical that was written to star Jeanette MacDonald in her return to Broadway. She hadn't been on Broadway since the 20s. Mm-hmm. And to star a, a, a young newcomer named Liza Minnelli before she had done much of anything. And it was about these... Uh, people who take refuge on the back lot of a film studio, sort of similar to what became Evening Primrose later. Mm-hmm. And uh, the show was never produced because Jeanette McDonald died. Uh, but I knew the score because of Marshall Bearer and Hugh Barton, who were both friends, and Liza also remembered and knew mm-hmm. the score. So I recorded this song, 
and it's one of the great unknown scores. And Stephen Sondheim was a fan of that score ah. and later wrote a Broadway musical called A Little Night Music. <laughs> and Johnny Mathis, I guess, knew my Algonquin album. When, and when he came on my radio show, Song Travels, he said, I love that song. I said, you want to sing it? He said, yeah, sure. And we did it. Oh, how wonderful. Just wonderful. It's, it, things come full circle. It's just great. But uh, we should tell people who don't know how you got started with all of this in a perhaps a capsulized form. Because if you know Michael as, a, as an entertainer, if you've seen him, at, well, we should plug all your venues. There's yes, sure. there, there, there are now two permanent venues, right? Yes. Feinstein's 54 Below in New York on 54th between uh, Broadway and 8th. Uh, named, Which once upon a time was Studio 54. Yes. Uh, the infamous Studio 54. Yes, we're in the basement. And uh, when when Liza comes there and others who were there in the old days, they say, oh, yeah, I was down here before, but I don't remember much about it. <laughs> <laughs> they always deny uh, sp any specifics. Uh, and then there's uh, a great club in New York at the Nico Hotel called Feinstein's at the Nico. San, Fr San, San, San Francisco. Francisco, sorry. Sorry, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm uh, conflict. conflict Grading uh, <laughs> the wrong places, yeah. Because you're, you're, because most of the time you're traveling from one place to another. Yes, it's yeah. it's very rare that we caught you actually today. And as this program airs, I believe you've just started. We're we're taping about a week ahead of uh, airtime. To use an old fashioned radio expression, mm -hmm. uh, you have begun your Christmas run. At Feinstein's uh, uh, 54. Yes, well, if we're doing uh, old radio jargon, uh, we're currently <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> yes. Why do they always say that? I, I, I've, I've done some digging into that question because, like you, I listen to old radio shows. And through the early 50s, announcers refer to it as Los Angeles. Los Angeles. And, and uh, even Jack Webb, I think, on Dragnet uh, in the early days called it Los Angeles. And I turned to John and Larry Gassman, the wonderful uh, twin brothers who are the spirits behind uh, the old-time radio group Spurdvac. Yes. The Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy. Spurdvac. Who couldn't know that? Like Spetsquin. Uh, exactly. So, uh, or, or Seratan, which is nature spelled backwards. Uh, or they, Evian, which is naive <laughs> spelled backwards. <laughs> they told me that apparently there was uh, an official... Uh, proclamation of sorts in the early 50s to to settle on a proper and official pronunciation of the City of Angels as Los Angeles. And that's when it became Los Angeles for good. And prior to that, there were variations, and one of them was often heard on radio. So That's not very interesting, is it? But I told that story anyhow. Well, but does that mean the general public was... Saying lo los maybe uh, really Angles oh, okay all right because well, <laughs> I never heard it in a film that way no nor nor did I yeah nor did I but uh, of course announcers uh, had to follow pronunciation guides in those mm -hmm. days uh, there would be an official NBC guide to pr pronunciations of composers names and things like that and uh, uh, so I guess there was a style like uh, uh, newspaper. Writers have a style book that they follow. I guess right. it was the same for radio. Right, right. And hence, then and now. Yes. But you are here now in Los Angeles as we speak. But as people listen to this, you will be performing at your own club in New York City. Yes. And it's a beautiful room, I have to say. Mm -hmm. It's great to be associated with it. And How wonderful. But you don't only perform there. You book other wonderful artists there, right? Oh, yes, yes. We've had uh, amazing people there. We've had... Uh, 
Uh, well, recently Ben Vereen was there, and we've had Patti Lapone. We've had uh, a lot of very prominent names, and we also have a lot of uh, Broadway stars who sometimes are doing their first nightclub turn, sometimes mm-hmm. terrified because they're not accustomed to being themselves mm-hmm. and seeing the audience being so close to the <laughs> audience. And then we do a lot of. Uh, a lot of emerging uh, music, uh, uh, tryouts of score, special evenings celebrating mm-hmm. uh, a composer or doing a revival of a score, or different songwriters doing evenings of their of their music, like a, a, a great guy named Joe Iconis who does these very edgy contemporary songs that are a combination of, of all different styles and contemporary theater. So it's a very... Uh, young place in that mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of young energy, and I love being a part of that. How wonderful. Yeah. You also present a lot of talented people on your NPR radio show, Song Travels, uh, which has an announcer with the deepest voice I've heard since Tony Marvin <laughs> in the old days of Arthur Godfrey. Uh, <laughs> well, he does have an yes. incredibly resonant voice. Yes. <laughs> I can't get that low. Yeah. But you can find all that at Michael's website, michaelfeinstein.com, and learn more about what he's up to. Uh, and uh, and you are also, for the past several seasons, the principal conductor, am I saying it right? Yes. For the Pasadena Pops Orchestra. Yes. Which does a summer season at, at the Pasadena Bowl, and which my wife and I have enjoyed immensely as we've come to see you there. And, and as usual, when you do a, you, you did a Frank Sinatra tribute, for instance, this past summer. He, ne- of, he needed it. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Uh, but... Unlike almost any other Sinatra tribute, yours included a beautiful piece of music that Sinatra did not sing, but sort of commissioned from his great arranger, Nelson Riddle, for an album in which he conducted. Yes. Uh, and it was exquisite. Oh, and no one, else, no one else is playing that music. And I think you told me it was the first time it had been performed since it was recorded in the 50s. Yes. It was from an album called Tone Poems of Color. Sinatra first conducted instrumental music of Alec Wilder in the 40s, those mm-hmm. octet recordings. And he conducted a number of other albums, one for Peggy Lee, one right. for Sylvia mm-hmm. Sims, and did, then did a, a great movie themes album. Uh, but this one was the most interesting because he commissioned all the great Hollywood composers to write pieces, tone poems of color. And orange was his favorite color, so uh, the Nelson Riddle piece, Orange, was the one that I chose to program for the concert. And where did you find the orchestration? It was in the Sinatra collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, he, he kept almost all of his orchestrations. And um, I have a, a, a lovely relationship with uh, uh, Nancy Sr. and Junior and Tina. Mm-hmm. And they allowed me to borrow and, and perform the music. How wonderful. How just wonderful. Amazing. Uh, and I must say that this sounds like I'm just uh, puffing you up or, or, or flattering you, which I don't need to do. Because you're already here. <laughs> you already you already slept here. That was from the puffing up you did previously. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. But, I, but I really, truly believe that you are singing and playing better than ever. And uh, uh, it, it's, 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 it's just such a pleasure to listen to you. But you. And you perform with such joy, Michael. You bring such, it's not just passion, but joy. There is a, a smile on your face, and, and it is a genuine one as you perform to a simpatico audience and, and bring them this music, this wonderful music, what does that feel like? It feels great because to connect with an audience is a lovely thing. To be able to share 
this music is extraordinary because it goes so deep in the souls of the people that hear it. And when I'm in that zone, all is good in the world because mm -hmm. music, of course, does many extraordinary things to to the body, to the being. It it uh, it heals. It it softens the heart. It it brings people together in a way that other art cannot and it gives me the opportunity to um, have an intimate experience w with people that that is life-changing sometimes I I might not feel up to performing I might not feel in the mood but the minute that I get on stage it always changes and it's always great and I've come to trust that the minute I get on stage it, it's gonna be great and it always is it's interesting because Elaine Stritch who was a, a close friend was terrified to perform and she said aren't you scared and I said Elaine I said that's the one place I'm not scared I said mm -hmm. life is where I'm scared I said but on stage You've got a, a microphone and lights and an audience, and you, you kind of know what you're going to do, and, and that's a blessing. And you're comfortable in front of an audience. I am, because I've done it for so long, and I was lucky enough to start in piano bars. I was playing in piano bars, and that's where I learned how to, to put a show together, how to program something, because I was playing five hours a night, and I had to learn how to, uh, how to get an audience. I had to learn how to capture their attention. Okay. I was going to say, piano bars, uh, that, that's it's kind of like going through basic training for the military or something. I mean, you, oh boy. You, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, I mean you're, you're, you're dealing with drunks, you're dealing with people who aren't there to hear you necessarily. Yeah. And, uh, and I would think that would be a, a wonderful proving ground. It was really something because when I first started playing piano bars, I was 17 because it was <laughs> in a restaurant in Ohio. And uh, I learned about having a big brandy snifter, the biggest glass bowl you can find, and to <laughs> seat it with a dollar for tips. And, and I learned how to capture the attention of people who sometimes were drinking, who sometimes, as you say, weren't there for the music, and to draw them in. And that was my college education mm -hmm. in learning how to entertain. And when I was playing in Columbus, Ohio, my hometown... I was playing at this place called The Dell, which was the only sort of theatrical music hangout there was there. And the cast of the summer stock shows of Kennelly Players would come in. So Jane, I met Jane Powell and Patsy Kelly and Harvey Korman and Mitzi Gaynor and all these people who would come mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, come to The Dell for the parties afterwards. So, my God, that was, that was amazing. And I, How wonderful. I, I remember asking Patsy Kelly about Al Jolson, what it was like to <laughs> work with Al Jolson. And she told me how when they were on Broadway in Wonder Bar, how one night in the scene where she was supposed to do this Pavlova dying swan routine, mm -hmm. uh, he, he shoots her and one night as a gag, he shot her with real buckshot. Which was Al Jolson's idea oh, that of a Jolson. joke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, so, I mean, things like that were, were life-changing to, to rub shoulders with mm. legends of show business. Wow. How cool. And what brought you out here to Los Angeles? I had the most strong, insistent feeling that I should move to California from Ohio. It was something that, had, that was so insistent in my brain and in my being. I just had to move here. It not, not New York. It would have made sense for me to go to New York. That's mm -hmm. where I should have gone if I wanted to sing and play show tunes like Bobby Short or wherever. That was mm -hmm. the place. But no, something said come to California. And uh, two months after I moved 
here, I met June Levant, the widow of Oscar Levant, through an odd series of coincidences where I found these records that had belonged to Oscar that had been sold unknown to June Levant. And she invited me over to get these records back and eventually introduced me to Ira Gershwin. And then I ended up spending six years working for no, Ira. No, 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 no. You're saying that too fast. Oh, okay. No, Sorry. That, that's, you're, Sorry. you're going over that a little too lightly. <laughs> so June Levant, widow of the legendary Oscar Levant, pianist, wit, sometimes actor, <laughs> yes. personality, yes. introduced you to Ira Gershwin. Yes. Brother and collaborator of George Gershwin. Yes. And then what happened? I was hired by Ira and his wife, Leonor, to catalog his collection of phonograph records. That, that was Lee Gershwin's excuse for getting me in the house because she mm -hmm. just wanted me around. And one day when I was cataloging one of the records, Ira was sitting near me and I was on, sitting at a little card table and I was whistling... And Ira was reading the New York Times with his back to me, and he froze. And he turned around, and he said, Mike, that's the verse of Beginner's Luck. I wrote that with George in 1936 for <laughs> Shall We Dance? And I said, I know. He said, how do you know that? I said, because I know your work. He said, you do? I said, yes. And he started asking me questions and quizzing me. Uh, and... And then he said, Lee tells me you play the piano. I said, yes. He said, well, play me something. So he went to the piano, the piano on which George had written uh, most of Porgy and Bess, which Ira oh, told my. me right before I put my fingers on the keys, <laughs> which made them sh shrivel. <laughs> and then I played uh, variations on I Got Rhythm as if they'd been written, in, as if it had been written in the style of Tchaikovsky of Johann Strauss. And, <laughs> and Ira got a kick out of that. And then he started quizzing me on songs. I started playing all these different groups. Was it a Steinway? It was, yes. Mm -hmm. And then, and it's now in the Library of Congress behind a rope. You know, and I can't get near it. Uh, but after I finished, Ira looked at me with the most quizzical expression and he said, how many more like you are there? <laughs> and it's because I was 20, he was 80, and he didn't think that anybody my age would know about or even care about his work. And after that... It, well, it changed our relationship. Mm -hmm. And then he started telling me stories and, and teaching me about the songs. And, and Lee Gershwin came to me and said, I, I want you to know that you've given my husband a new lease on life. And I, I know you're going to go off and do other things one day, but I want you to stay here as long as you can. Just keep Ira occupied and happy. And that's what I did. Wow. Wow. It should be said that when, when his uh, brilliant brother George died, prematurely, much too young, yes. uh, in 1937, 38. Yes, July 11th, 1937. He was 38 years old. Right. Yeah. Um, Ira, uh, Ira's career kind of, well, it didn't peter out. He stopped. But, but he, you know, he, 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 he stopped working on a regular basis, would occasionally be persuaded to write something again, and did now and then. Yes. And did notably now and then. Yes. But, uh, but, what, how do you explain what happened to him? Did he just become paralyzed, you think, by the tragedy? Yes, that was a big part of it. Also, Ira was sedentary. George was the motivating factor mm -hmm. in the collaboration. Ira would never have worked as hard as he did 
if it weren't for George, because George was always accepting the contract for the next show or the next project, and mm-hmm. Ira was presumably a part of it. And uh, George would sometimes say, come on, Ira, I need the lyric, I need the lyric, and you've got to get <laughs> cracking. But Ira was a procrastinator and didn't like to work. He would do it, but it, it, when, he, it, when he started to work on a lyric, he would start maybe at, after dinner, you know, at 6 o'clock, and then he would stop. Uh, and uh, listen to the radio or he would read a book and then he would uh, <laughs> uh, start to write a few lines. Then about 10 o'clock at night, he would have a Dagwood sandwich, you know, and then he would go back. And then he wouldn't really get to finishing a lyric, a lyric till about 6 in the morning. And one morning, the housekeeper came in about 7 in the morning and saw Ira all disheveled, wandering around the room, talking to himself, mumbling <laughs> to himself. And, and she went to, to Lee Gershwin and said, don't Mr. Gershwin never go to work <laughs> she was completely puzzled so so george was the one who who got him working and and uh, when george died so tragically and suddenly of a brain tumor uh, ira was angry at god he felt that he should have gone in george's place because george was the genius george was the one who should have lived and ira never got over that he was paralyzed and he never expected to work again but a couple of things happened uh, one was that he put on these records that Johnny Green made with Fred Astaire of the songs from Shall We Dance. And as he played them, he felt a sense of George's spirit coming to him saying, you have to go on. And it was the first step towards re- relieving his grief, even though he never was completely relieved. And then um, Jerome Kern uh, persuaded him to write a few lyrics in 1938, some standalone tunes. So Ira realized he could do it again. And then uh, in 1940, he didn't really work till 1940 when Moss Hart persuaded him to work on a show called Lady in the Dark mm-hmm. with Kurt Vile. Uh, but he often would accept two jobs at the same time to tell both parties that he was committed to get out of them. <laughs> but sometimes he would get stuck and he would have to work. <laughs> and of all the people he worked with, which included Kurt Vile, Aaron Copeland, Harold Arlen, Burton Lane, Arthur Schwartz. He said that George was the only one whom he considered to be a true genius. Wow. Well, he was a bit prejudiced in that. <laughs> yes. But many people do agree with him. It's so, true. Then and now. Yes. Um, what, what did musical movies mean to you as you were growing up? The first musical that made a big impression on me was Top Hat. Mm-hmm. My parents took me to the uh, Columbus, Ohio Center of Science and Industry where they were having a screening of, of Top Hat. And they showed a 16-millimeter print in this little room. And it was life-changing for me. That's when I really discovered Fred Astaire and I really became aware of movie musicals. And then I would stay up late to watch them on TV because they only showed them late at night as as filler. And it was... Life-changing because not only getting to see the performers, but the orchestrations and the arrangements. Mm -hmm. They were so sophisticated and so advanced and so far above anything that was coming out of Broadway or other musical outlets of that time. And I started listening to the craft of what they did and it affected the way that I played these songs and how I learned them. Years ago, I was interviewing Joe Stafford for a project, and Joe Stafford, the great vocalist who was married to Paul Weston, told me that during the war, she made a trip to New York and saw Oklahoma. 
And everyone was going on and on about Oklahoma and the orchestrations by Robert Russell Bennett. And Joe Stafford was a product of Hollywood, had grown up in Los Angeles and worked in the film studio singing background and working with all these orchestrators. And she said, Robert Russell Bennett, give me a break. (laughs) She thought he was nothing compared to what they were doing in Hollywood, which was like 20 years ahead of its time. You know, I used to be a, a Broadway original cast album snob. And uh, I would never think of listening to the soundtrack of Oklahoma from mm-hmm. the 50s. Uh, I would listen to the original cast album from Broadway in the 40s. And it took me many years to appreciate what you realized very early on, which is why you do what you do and I do what I do. But it, that, that first off, the sheer size of the orchestra. Yeah. Uh, that even in the old now Broadway pit bands, uh, if you're lucky, you get a quintet. But the Broadway pit bands are very small now. But even very. when they were sizable, like maybe 30 musicians or so, yes, uh, that was nothing compared to a Hollywood orchestra. So th- just the actual sound was so much fuller and richer in, in, a, in a musical, even an ordinary musical. Yes, and on a, an ambitious musical with a great orchestrator. Uh, is just magnificent. Yes. Well, one of the things that drives me crazy, which I really have to get over, (laughs) okay, I'm getting over it right now, is how everybody calls the cast album soundtrack. Oh, I I share that fervor. It's like, no, it's not a soundtrack, because a soundtrack literally means the piece of music that's on a strip on the film, on the physical film. I know people have fallen into that unfortunate habit. Yeah. We have to break them of it. Yes, we, we do. We have to break them of it. <laughs> if you're listening to Hamilton, you're listening to the cast album of Hamilton. You're listening to the original Broadway cast album of Hamilton. Yes. And when they make a movie of it in 15 or 20 years, as has been indicated, there may be a soundtrack. But that's what it will be then, not now. Thank and you. so it goes. Uh, and so it goes. What? I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, some musicals that you are very fond of that you think are perhaps underappreciated. All right. Musicals. Uh, movie music. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how well-known it is or not. And it's not the greatest film, but it still has wonderful things in it, and that's The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Well, yes. It, 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 there's the, the movie that almost was, yeah. kind of. Yeah. But you, helped, you had a big part in producing a three-CD soundtrack set that even that you told me even you thought was maybe more than anybody needed to hear from that from that i can't listen yeah. to it it's too much it's, <laughs> i but i i played those cds over and over and over again in my car i couldn't stop listening to the demo recordings yeah. and the preliminary recordings and i found uh, another one recently found another <laughs> demo of frederick hollander at the piano found another one that that's that isn't on the now set. this is we're, we're talking about the 1953 movie uh, that was to have been a pretty ambitious musical fantasy written by Dr. Seuss, the only movie that he, the only feature-length movie he ever wrote. And did he set designs too? It looks like it. Uh, uh, perhaps I don't remember. Uh, maybe Eugene Lurie had something to do with that. Huh. But uh, it's an incredible-looking movie, and if you saw it as a kid, you remember it because it's about a little boy who uh, hates to practice the piano. And has this nightmarish experience of uh, going to a land where that's all they do on these giant unending keyboards. And he wears a beanie with a five-fingered, like a glove, on his head. 
uh, to indicate the the five uh, five little. Five. What is it? Ten little happy fingers. Ten little happy fingers, yes, yes. And Hans Conried, the wonderful Hans Conried, plays both the piano teacher and Dr. Terwilliger, Dr. T, of the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Uh, and unfortunately, they, in their lack of wisdom, cut all the really good songs from the movie. Yeah. Some of them were actually filmed. Yes. Some were not. Yeah. But it wasn't the movie it was intended to be. Evidently, it previewed and it scared Scared the heck out of kids, and then they recut it. And, <laughs> but the original main title on the CD it, it, uh, soundtrack is is fantastic. One of the other tragedies of that film, uh, to me anyway, is that there's an ad in Variety uh, saying that it's available for rental in uh, stereophonic sound, hmm. and now it just exists in sort of marginal mono sound. And to be able to hear. That scoring in stereo would have been spectacular. Oh, yeah. Fred, Fred, Frederick Holler's last film score, but very distinguished career. Yes. And I, I, um, the reason I went to Columbia Pictures to, to, with Harriet Crawford those years ago was to find mm. the lost, the cut songs from Dr. T, and, and she gave them to me. And I got the original orchestration of the dressing song, Come On and Dress Me, Dress Me, Dress Me in My oh, Finest gosh. Array, which I later recorded. And I sent it to Dr. Seuss, who wrote me a note back. A very lovely note. Uh, and he said, oh, that was Freddie Hollander's last score. He said, after that, he left Hollywood never to be heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was on an album that served as your introduction to my daughter, Jessie. Because you made a wonderful record for kids, ostensibly for kids, called Pure Imagination. Yes. Which, again, had an eclectic gathering of songs that kids might like and did like. But that grown-ups like me fell in love with as well. That and, was the idea, and and uh, well, it worked uh, because you had uh, the, the title song to the Mole People, written, yes, <laughs> written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, and they sing backup on the recording. Yes. <laughs> the Mole People, they live in a hole. People. They're under Mount Everest and the Okefenokee Swamp. They have to dig and hack to China and back so they have room to romp. So they chomp a diddy, chomp a diddy, chomp a diddy, chomp a diddy, chomp, 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 chomp. God, God <laughs> bless them and God bless you. And, and then the Dress Me Up song from Dr. T, yes. and, uh, which Hans Conried performs so well and which you do well as, uh, in, in the same vein. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing how a song can have an effect on people, isn't it? Uh, that it can resonate, yes. that it can can really, I don't know what the word is beside resonate, I don't know what else to say, that a song can really have a, a deep significance or meaning. It's, uh, it can be transformative. Mm-hmm. Music also brings people together, and, yeah. and uh, I, I, I lament how music is fragmented in some ways in that we don't have as much of a communal experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were times in our history when songs helped to heal the country or sure. to make us feel better. Sure. Or, uh, I mean, there's so, so many experiences like that that are rare now. Are yeah. Rare now. Yeah. Um, other musicals that you are fond of that, that perhaps wouldn't be on everybody's top ten list? Well, I've always had affection for Deep in My Heart, mm-hmm. which, uh, again, is because of the musical sequences in it. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a great film, and Jose Ferrer really chews the scenery as, as portraying Sigmund Romberg. But. It's a late MGM musical from the 50s with an all-star cast, 
uh, and we're doing totally disconnected musical numbers. Yeah. But the parts are greater than the whole, and there's some wonderful stuff in that movie. Yeah, and Sid Charisse and James Mitchell, the dance, oh, the number they exquisite. Did. That's probably one of the sexiest things I've ever seen on film. Absolutely. Just, just uh, magnificent. And you get to see Fred Kelly dancing with his more famous brother, Gene. Yes, yes. And they, it's a wonderful duet. They do a wonderful number together. I love to go swimming with women. <laughs> <laughs> and I was told recently that it's not Fred Kelly's voice that he was dubbed, which was, ah. which was disappointing. <laughs> you know, uh, there are so many Crosby films that are, mm-hmm. that are obscure. He made so many movies. He was a good actor. And movies like Pennies from Heaven or, or Mississippi. Uh, uh, There's a wonderful score by Rogers and Hart. Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, of course, and they, and they cut too many good numbers from that too. Yeah, they, uh, it's easy to remember. Of course, is mm-hmm. is uh, is great. It's great. Uh, and Crosby in uh, it was a big broadcast of 1936 singing "I Wished on the Moon." Mm-hmm. Uh, great, great. Oh, he was so good. Uh, he's he's so neglected these days. Yeah, so yeah. Neglected. Under undervalued, underrated. But you sang, no pun intended, his praises in a very good PBS documentary. Uh, oh, yes. For American Masters, which uh, I highly recommend if you missed it when it aired. You can get it on DVD and perhaps even uh, stream it somewhere. But it's a really first-rate documentary done by a friend of mine, Robert Bader, uh, full disclosure. Uh, he produced it. He didn't uh, direct or write it, but he was the uh, moving force behind getting it made. And you do in that documentary what you do in many others uh, including the one on sophie tucker that came out last year. all right right but is, is that you 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 articulate what made these people special or what made them unique and uh that's so important it's so important that people understand what it was and you can put that into words which is a very rare ability oh thank you well, and uh right back at you uh, mm-hmm. what's funny I, I sent a copy of the of, of that documentary to f- my friend phyllis newman mm-hmm. Uh, who's a wonderful actress and singer and, and was married to Adolph Green, the great songwriter and librettist. Because uh, uh, she, she said, Crosby, she said, I never paid attention to Crosby. I said, watch this. Yeah. And she called me. She said, you know something? She said, I didn't realize how great he was and how sexy he was. And I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. She found him sexy. But the thing about this documentary is that it is very even-handed. It, 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 yes, it, it's it, very it, fair. And it, and it, it does cover... Uh, some of the you know some of the rougher ground, some of the tougher ground, also exposes the fact very importantly that Gary Crosby's notorious accusations about his father were bogus. Yeah, uh, when he wrote a book to make money uh, called "Going My Own Way," yeah, and accused his father of being abusive, which apparently he was not. Yeah, that that was very sad. It particularly upset uh, Rosemary Clooney, who was a good mm-hmm. friend, and she she uh, at the time the book came out was was just uh, beside herself. I mean, oh, now, now, now tell us, because I'm, I'm, this is like a, a lawyer leading the witness. <laughs> tell us how you happened to meet Rosemary Clooney. Oh. Well, Rosemary Clooney was always one of my favorite singers. My mm-hmm. two favorite singers are, are Fred Astaire and Rosemary Clooney. What does mm-hmm. that tell you about me? <laughs> well, a lot of things. But you have good taste. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I started working for Ira, who lived at 1021 North Roxbury Drive, his next-door neighbor, who lived at 1019 North Roxbury Drive, was <laughs> Rosemary Clooney. And I would hear her pull into the driveway, and she would sing. Uh, and it was, drove me crazy that I, that I never got to meet her. And one day, uh, Lee Gershwin said, Rosemary Clooney is not feeding her cat. 
And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, the cat keeps coming over here to eat. Well, Lee Gershwin would buy base shrimp every day from the Delicatessen in Beverly Hills and put out dishes of base shrimp. And every cat within a 20-mile radius would come to eat this shrimp, right? So Rosemary's cat was fighting the other cats and eating the shrimp. So she said, you have to go over and tell her that she has to take better care of her cat. I said, really? Anyway, I went next door, and Rosemary somehow knew about me and said, sit down, honey. We sat down in the kitchen, and she be, we became close. She became my, my, my second mom. She used to call me her, her sixth kid because she had five children. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sang on my first recording and went on the Merv Griffin show with me and got me attention that helped, helped to kickstart my career. And I miss her to this day. Well, who, uh, who of us doesn't? Yeah, uh, she she was extraordinary, and and what an extraordinary trajectory to her career too, because she yeah. started out as a uh, purely a, a pop singer, who had forced upon her by oh, her boy. producer Mitch Miller, yeah, uh, uh, pop uh, trash that made her a big star. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, these were hit songs in many cases. Yes, but they were not great music, hmm. and uh, so they did her a lot of good in terms of making her famous. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, paying the rent. Uh, but it was in later years, she sort of reinvented herself yes. as, a, 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 as a more mature interpreter of great popular and even jazz songs. Yes, she wanted to sing standards in the, in the 50s, but they wouldn't let her. The day she recorded Come Out of My House, which was her first major hit that got her on the cover of Time magazine. It was mm-hmm. a massive hit. The, the first, the day they were recording it... Uh, the harpsichord needed for the session did not show up. And so Stan Freeman, who was there, uh, said to Rosemary, well, what do you know? Let's do something on piano since we have time. And she recorded The Lady is a Tramp uh, by Rogers and Harden, I'll Be Around by Alec Wilder. Magnificent recordings, and she was just like 22 or 23. And they didn't even release them until several years later, sort of buried them. They, mm-hmm. it, they were... They're, they're, Definitive recordings, and Columbia didn't even release them because wow. they were so unimportant. Wow. Tell us about your, your contributions to the Library of Congress. This was I, also to keep you off of the Hoarders TV show, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, I am on the National Recording Preservation Board, which uh, exists to uh, preserve sound recordings, which are more endangered than any other uh, medium because there are so many recordings, not only commercial recordings, but radio recordings and field recordings and home recordings. Uh, but I've also been involved with the library for many years as, as a donor, donating mm-hmm. many items to them, including rare Gershwin artifacts, including a contract, original contract to Porgy and Bess signed by the principals and Gershwin manuscripts and such that I've gathered. And uh, I just gave them 20 boxes of orchestrations that I'll never use that have classical music. And um, uh, I'm a sort of an unofficial spokesperson with the library. And we're getting ready to do a television series about the holdings of the library uh, because libraries are, are sort of mysterious things. People don't realize that they're living, breathing, and important mm-hmm. things. The Library of Congress uh, has... Uh, the greatest collections of many things, like they have the largest and most important connect- collection of baseball cards. They have the, the greatest collection of, of books on law. Uh, they have, uh, of course, the most extraordinary musical archive with manuscripts of everyone from Beethoven and Bach to John Philip Sousa to Richard Rogers to, to Burt Bacharach to Henry Mancini to the Gershwins. You, go, you can go on and on. You can name 
any subject, I guarantee you that they probably have one of the greatest collections of comic books. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, they have extraordinary artifacts, and they are available to people. Mm-hmm. And so this program, and people don't realize that they, they don't realize it. They don't realize it. Not to mention film. Of course, of course. But that's another whole subject. Yes. Uh, but you have added to their collection, their archives, and I'm sure enriched them uh, tremendously. And that's a gift to America, a gift to posterity, and a gift to music lovers. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, thank you so much for coming by today, Michael. Oh, this is wonderful. I, I so appreciate you for so many reasons. You are, you are so important uh, for our world. Oh, shucks. It's true. Oh, it's true. shucks. Well, we both, we're both lucky. We get to do something we love. We get to do something we deeply care about, and that is what unites us as well as our friendship. Uh, I want to encourage you again to go to Michael's website, michaelfeinstein.com, where you can find out what he's up to and where he is at any given moment. There's an actual GPS tracking system on it (laughs) that will tell you where he's headed. And if there's a flea market nearby... Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Look out. Look out, because he's, uh, he, he's a driven man. Uh, I should be a good author and tell you to plug my book. Here, here, here it goes. Christmas and Hanukkah are coming, and if you have somebody dear to you in your life who loves classic movies, we have a new third updated edition of Leonard Maltin's Classic Movie Guide, presented by TCM. And it's available wherever books are sold. That means online, in stores, on street corners, anywhere books are sold. It's Leonard Malton's Classic Movie Guide. There, I now have done my plug. And you can find me on Twitter at Leonard Malton and at my website, LeonardMalton.com. And you'll find me here, I hope with my daughter Jessie in tow, next time we gather. So thanks again for listening. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 